0: We've been fighting a long time, and we have all lost so very much, so many loved ones gone. But you are not alone. There are pockets of resistance all around the planet. We are at the brink. You have no idea.
1: Welcome everybody, Steve with Sun Spidelli. Coming at you once again with the great Michael Graney and Don Brohan, authors of Economic Personalism and future authors of the new book coming out. We will get to that down the road. Anyways, welcome back, guys. Good morning, good wherever, whenever you are.
2: Good morning, Steve.
1: So morning. this is on, how would I say it? missing something. We're entitling this, I believe. So last time you mentioned a meeting with the vatican what meeting was that why should anyone care besides you
2: (laughs) well this is kind of an interesting little intersection of history that um will start arbitrarily in uh 1985 um and to give you a little background cesj when it was formed in 1984 uh brought together uh thinkers in um, the areas of social justice and economic justice. Does this
1: have anything to do with the book also entitled 1984?
2: Oh my God. Well, it was, <laughs> yes, I would say it's highly ironic that the things in 1984 actually seem to be happening now. But um, one of our co founders, Father William Faree, was uh, considered a, a, an authority in the writings of Pius XI. He had done his dissertation. At Catholic University, on uh, Pope Pius XI's writings on social justice and the social virtues. So, he brought to us um, very carefully defined principles of social justice and a better understanding of what that means and what the common good means and how each individual person relates to uh, the common good or can relate to it. And that related very closely to the work that uh, Norman who uh, who is another co-founder of CESJ, happens to be my father, had been working in, um, at one point, in the civil rights movement with people like Medgar Evers. And uh, the, he understood the process, but he never had a clear concept of what he couldn't define social justice until he met Father Free. Now, my father later discovered the ideas of Louis Kelso, who had written a book in the, um, I guess it was the f- 1958, with the Thomas philosopher Mortimer Adler, or uh, Aristotelian Thomas philosopher, um, who started the Great Books Program. And um, Louis Kelso and Adler had defined in that book a uh, economic justice in terms of principles. Um, an input principle, an outtake principle, and a feedback corrective principle, which they called participative justice, distributive justice. And then they had another term, it was the principle of limitation. And this was the idea in an economy, you don't want monopolies to form. And so you have to have that concept. And it was later that we realized that Father Friese, his concept of social justice was really a better term for that third balancing and corrective principle. So, CESJ, in a sense, was uh, a coming together of ideas. And and I should mention, Kelso also was a corporate finance lawyer. So he had figured out that there is a way to turn non-owners into owners without taking away the property or wealth or income of the current owners. And this has to do with finance. So you had very important principles for people to understand you know, what's going on in terms of the structuring of society and the economy. Um, But you maybe didn't have the practical means to achieve this so that every human person, every individual person from the time they're born throughout their lifetime could gradually accumulate more and more productive assets using capital credit repaid with future profits. So that's getting into sort of the, the mechanism. Now, what happened in Um, It would have been late 1984. This was soon after we actually founded CESJ, and there were about, I think, seven, eight co-founders, and I I happen to be privileged to be part of this, that through a series of high-level contacts, um, including our contact with um, the uh, Senior Economic Advisor to the National Security Council during Reagan's administration. This is Dr. Norman Bailey. He asked my father to write a paper on how you would deal with the problems in Central America and the Caribbean with uh, communist insurgencies. And there was something. Oh, sorry, yeah.
0: Yeah. Uh, This was preceded by, and get a load of the dates. You're not gonna believe them. In 1984, on September 11th. Father we're just Fareed, we're just hitting
1: all the numbers right now. Wow,
0: numerology. <laughs> Gee. Father Faree and Norm Norman Curland, uh, testified before the lay commission on the economy which had was made up of, you know, rather important Catholic laity, including Thomas Simon, who was, was he Secretary of the Treasury or something?
2: William Simon.
0: William Simon, sorry. Uh, And Father Faree gave his famous comment that the lay commission and the bishops commission who are working on a pastoral on the economy were engaged in a dialogue of the deaf. And so Father Faree gave his uh, comments regarding the real social justice uh norman curland gave his uh little talk on what economic justice really meant and how to achieve it and the lay commission as i understand it nodded very sagely but did not submit any of what father free and norman curland had said to the bishop's committee uh what finally became Economic Justice for All, the 1987 U.S. Bishops Pastoral on the economy, uh, mentioned Father Faree in a footnote and got it wrong, and didn't mention Norman Curland at all. Instead, they mentioned some other alleged authority on expanded ownership who had not worked with Louis Kelso. I mean, of the, all the people they could have picked who testified on anything, to any commission there, Norman Curland was probably the most knowledgeable about expanded capital ownership and the ESOP and other and the whole philosophy behind it. Not a word. I, I won't tell you who they mentioned, but it was somebody else. And then they go into eulogies and you know, just ecstatic over E.F. Schumacher's Small is Beautiful, which is a Fabian socialist tract. But this may have helped you know, Norman Bailey become aware of what was going on, which led to what Don is about to talk about.
1: Just in case Wait. somebody just tuning in didn't watch the other videos when you explained that about the Fabian socialist version of uh, Schumacher, could you explain just a little bit uh, why that is? Uh, why that
0: Schumacher was a Fabian socialist? or what? <laughs> Yeah, yeah,
1: just just a little bit, just in case someone for the first time going, what's he talking about?
0: I like that well, book. Schumacher was a a member of the inner circle of the Fabian Society. This is not made up. He he published Fabian tracts. He was a member of the post-war British Fabian government, the one that they brag about on their website. Uh, He wrote this uh, new, new age type of economics into his book, Small is Beautiful, Economics as if People Mattered, And it was originally marketed during uh, Schumacher's lifetime as the new age guide to economics. I mean, made no bones about it. And a lot of people today seem to think that this is an exemplar of Catholic social teaching. Well, not really. Uh, It was followed up in 1979 by his book, A Guide for the Perplexed, a title that he ripped off from Moses Maimonides, the medieval Jewish philosopher and, Aristotelian, which posits that there are actually different kinds of truth as you raise your level of consciousness, which of course flatly contradicts Aquinas and of course the official teaching of the Catholic church, that truth is a unity. That which is true is as true and is true in the same way as everything else that is true. This relates to the analogy of being, which you don't want to hear about right now. Uh, But if something is true, it's true. The whole of Thomism, you know, the philosophy of Thomas Aquinas is built on this. And here's uh E. F. Schumacher saying in a book published in 1979, oh no, 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 that's not true.
1: Truth changes. And we got more of that in the other videos. But like I said, just wanted to, just in case somebody first time coming in, going, wait a minute, I like that book. What what's he what's he crashing on it for? But that's why. Yeah. All right, back on, back to I, the, I the game.
2: Just <laughs> quickly comment on that, Steve, is that I think we have to be careful not to go after the individual thinkers themselves who may have you know I think sincere desire to help make things in the world better it but it becomes and this is why you know the it, it speaks to the importance of principles so we can understand where an idea or a plan can start to cause more destructive effects and when when Uh, Mike and I talk about socialism of any form, whether it's Fabian socialism or any other kind of socialism. The main principle that we would argue against is where power and property, in other words, the rights of ownership, where should they be vested? Should it be in the government? Should it be vested in the collective? Or should it be in each person, They're every member of that, if we're talking economics, that ec- economic unit. So what we would warn people against is, it's not so much that someone is, you know, a, a, you know problem as a, a human being, they may or may not be, but really look at the ideas to see where the person, the human person fits into all of this and how much are they, do they have ac- access to the means to fully participate and be rewarded for how they contribute. um, If you're talking about economics, um, it's to contribute to the production of goods and services. With that- It should be mentioned that socialism, that, that some
0: socialists will say, oh, but we don't abolish private property because people are allowed to own. But property is not merely title, you know, legal ownership. It's who has the right to control what is owned and who gets the income. Yeah. If I get to own uh, a farm, but the government comes in and says, well, you must grow this, that, and the other thing, and we're going to take the entire crop and not give you any of it, do you really own that farm or is that government owned? You may have legal
2: title, but you're not the owner. The government is right. And just the story, which um, I was starting to um, recall, uh, really had to do with a a time in history, um, in U.S. history and world history, where you had um, an ideological war going on and an actual conflicts that were very close to home. This was in Central America and the Caribbean. And so the White House and Ronald Reagan was very concerned about dismantling communism. So it happened that one of the people in our network who had known of Kelso since the late 60s, actually, um, and knew my father, uh, asked Norm to write a paper that would apply these principles of economic justice and social justice. Um, as it would address the problem in Central America and the Caribbean regions. And so Norm wrote his paper, and we had, uh, we CESJ is an interfaith organization. We're not religious per se, but um, we, uh, our principles really derive from this concept of having um, absolute values and a source of absolute values, such as truth and justice. So it's not Relative, we how we perceive these things may be according to our personal abilities and insights, but there is something we believe that God is or creates, and Mike talks about the natural law, so it relates to that. But in any case, uh, Rabbi Krantz, Herzl Krantz, um, from a con- he was a rabbi f- in a congregation in Silver Spring had contacts on Capitol Hill, mainly with, I think, Democrats. And he knew Michael Barnes, who was considered very left, very left wing. And we had another person in our circle, uh, Robert Crane, who also knew of Kelsey's ideas. He was a cousin of Phil Crane, who was a representative. And he was considered far right. Now, when we were able to present the ideas to, it started with Michael Barnes, And Michael Barnes said he agreed he'd co-sponsor some legislation to form what was called later the uh, Presidential Task Force on Project Economic Justice. So he said he'd support that. And then through Bob Crane, we got to Phil Crane, who said he would support the ideas as well. And so you had what was called by another senator who became a co-sponsor, I think it was... um, I'm forgetting his name right now, uh, Laxall, uh, he said, if these two come together, that's a cosmic event. And so we were able to get sponsorship for this presidential task force, which put out a a, a unanimously approved report. This was done without any taxpayer money, the, the task force. So here we have this report, and we also have, by this time, Father Free had passed away uh, but we had other connections, and uh, primarily through uh, Father Tash and U House. And um, I guess Mike, what what was his title in this, in uh, uh, Pennsylvania? Um,
0: oh, I, I think he was the rector at Saint Anne's Basilica in Scranton. Right. I, I think.
2: Yes, I think that's correct. But he also had um, very close ties to various cardinals and uh, archbishops. I think he was also
0: formerly head of the Center for the Applied Research of the Apostolate at Georgetown or something.
2: Yes, and so he was a big deal in himself. He was considered by many as a great eminence kind of behind the scenes. Um, And he was a good friend of ours, and he arranged through his um, contact uh, then Archbishop uh, Kile Silvestrini uh, to see whether we could get an audience with Pope John Paul II. And so after, and this wouldn't have happened without Father Cassian's, his, his help at every step. And he arranged for a delegation of the task force to go and have a private audience with uh, Pope John Paul II. And by the time the delegation, mainly CESJ members got to Rome, um, he, uh, Father Cassian had to report to them, sorry, the meeting's been canceled. The Pope had, you know, the uh, head of state come in unexpectedly, and so, you know, you guys are bumped. And Rabbi Krantz, being the kind of person who would not take no for an answer, uh, he spoke directly to uh, Archbishop Silvestrini, and he said, "You have this. Uh, this is a presidential delegation from the United States." Um, I think, can you do whatever you can to get us on the Pope's, you know, schedule? And so uh, Archbishop Silvestrini, who who also became a good friend of CESJ's, um, he managed to get a private audience, um, and this was outside of the Pope's private library, which I guess that's considered the the highest level of meeting would be inside the private library. We were just outside the, the door. So you had there um, members of CESJ in the task force, but also members of the Polish Solidarity Union. And so you start to see this CESJ, tiny little organization, hardly gotten off the ground, you know, barely one year old, had managed to get a private audience. And what was significant, and this is why we start our book with this little anecdote, was that, we didn't completely appreciate, at the time, how significant the people as representatives of certain ideas were. So we had CESJ bringing in the ideas of social justice, Pius XI, and also the ideas of Lewis Kelso and Mortimer Adler. But we didn't know at the time that Pope John Paul II himself was a scholar in what uh, we now recognize as personalism and then economic personalism as those ideas relate to our economic lives. So this was uh, sort of a theme for this book to see how now you have when you have good definitions, clear definitions and you have clear principles and you have sound means in order to achieve a good objective, you can suddenly see how many of the problems that are basically in the systems are just got woven into the ways our institutions work, our laws and just customs have allowed our institutions, such as you could say the, the banking system as an institution or the education system as an institution. When they start going off track and departing from sound principle and sound means, then you can see where division and conflict and sort of this separation a great gap in terms of uh, of who gets to participate in society and get the benefits of their participation so that's kind of an introduction to this chapter which was called um, something missing so I'll let Mike carry on from here
0: brief introduction yeah (laughs) well as it relates to this book economic personalism the the meeting at the Vatican with John Paul II uh, was more than significant. Uh, we were given to understand later that, you know, he well, during the meeting he gave his personal encouragement for the work of CESJ, what we now call the Just Third Way of economic personalism. Uh, we have had unconfirmed reports that on at least three occasions he recommended it to some very important people and heads of state. Uh, Unfortunately, there's no way to verify that he did that. Uh, But we were told by the the traditional reputable source that it did happen. Uh, But out of that first meeting came our second meeting, which was mostly a seminar at the Vatican for heads of religious orders uh, with the theme on how important private property was for you know, helping to eliminate, you know, basically the pandemic of global poverty. And out of that eventually came uh, the book, Economic Personalism.
2: So I think what, um, what this book did was, and this was at the encouragement of one of our contacts who uh, was actually a reporter at the Vatican and he has all, many different connections to um, officials there, that he brought to our attention the importance of this concept called personalism, because up until then, we had been using kind of a, a general, very open-ended term, the just third way. And that was really to contrast with the ideas of um individualism I mean extreme individualism and extreme collectivism or collectivism at all we would say um, which in the economic sphere would translate into monopolistic capitalism and collectivist socialism or communism so the, the what was lacking in those concepts starts with a lack of recognition of the human person that the human person is this starting point and the human person is what connects to God. It's not institutions may serve as props to help us in our relationship to God, but it's really person to God that we're talking about in in terms of rights. They start because uh, we believe that God vested certain natural rights in human, human persons, not corporations, human persons and with rights comes powers and responsibilities as well so once you see this in for the overall social order you can see then in economics what does this mean power and rights and uh and responsibilities then that brings in you have to have mechanisms and principles for that and so starting with that notion of how how do you ensure that each human person, not an abstract the human person, but every human person from the day they're born till the day they die, have their own independent source of income. Because if you don't have an independent source of income, someone can control you. As long as they can control your stomach, they can control your brain as well. It's very hard when you're starving and your children are starving to think independently. So that's why in a political order, you have to have the economic system underlying it, making sure that you have individually um, self-sufficient human beings. Now, when I say self-sufficient, here's another difference is that we realize we're social creatures and we couldn't even survive. We wouldn't be, you know, just looking at each of the screens now showing, we're in three different dwelling places with, we have our possessions, we have our families, and we wouldn't be here if it weren't for the interactions of many people over many, many years. So um, we take into account the social aspect of human beings. And I'll I'll let Mike comment some more on that. Um, Are we still in the introduction? (laughs) <laughs> no, we're now into, you know, what's missing.
1: Yeah, I was about to ask you, so what do y'all mean by what something's missing?
2: Yeah, right. That's where we were.
1: Well, you mentioned the food thing. Didn't somebody say if you control the food, you control the masses?
2: Yes, and among other things, too, if you control the communications, you also control the masses yeah. as well. So, yeah. yeah. So what do y'all mean by
1: something's missing?
2: Okay, something's missing. Well, I mentioned that the... the primary focus on the human person as the human person relates to the rest of society to other people but also social institutions that a clear perspective on that is not addressed in this what's being taught today either by those who follow um the principles of individualism which we would we would um accept uh, other than there's uh, an inadequate recognition of our social natures as well. So we would say a human being is both unique, uniquely a unique creation, but we are also human beings. And part of our nature as human beings is we have to interact with other people in order to survive and and develop as human beings.
0: Yeah, And so within that framework of understanding with the focus on the human person, specifically what we find missing in you know today's notions of economic justice or anything else pretty much is that one three things one people don't really understand what social justice is uh if you're an incredible scholar like father faree you'll you'll find it in pious movement social doctrine but not too many people are of that caliber uh, two uh the concept of participative justice now this too is most people have a vague notion that if there's something good everybody should be allowed to somehow participate in it but how and how it relates to all the other things that people are supposed to be doing and how it relates to your dignity as a person it's not too clear and there's also that massive confusion between what is good for the individual and the common good of all humanity. It, it can get very confusing if you don't distinguish between the two. And three, and this is probably the most mundane and yet most pervasive thing that's missing is an understanding of money and credit. I realize most people don't like to talk about money unless it's how to get some more of it. Uh, And people like to think of money and credit as the great villain, or if you're Milton Friedman, the great blessing, because greed is good. But we do have to get an understanding of what money and credit really are, and to be extremely brief so that we can start actually getting into what (laughs) the subject of this video is supposed to be. Money and credit are simply a way of how we exchange what I produce for what you produce it's not this thing in and of itself it's a tool that we use to exchange productions and engage in commerce and carry out transactions it has no meaning apart from what i produce and what you produce now massive distortions have been forced on it but what money really is at heart is just a tool that we use to exchange things
2: right and to, I, we should point out to measure the value of exchanges. So we know when we are um, uh, carrying on a transaction with someone else that both sides feel that they're getting equal value in what they're exchanging. Uh, and the reason Mike brings up money and credit is it, it ties into the notion of participative justice. And specifically in terms of participation in the economic process of production of of goods and services and the consumption of goods and services and having people having the income to to purchase what is produced. So what we see today is uh, a growing gap between those who are very, very wealthy and own most of the productive assets in society, at least as individuals, and then a growing number of people who have not only nothing, they have more debt than they have ownership. So what is causing that gap to keep increasing? It's not getting smaller, it's actually getting wider, and the percentage of ownership is really held by a a very, very tiny fraction of human beings. So that tells you, as human persons, you don't have that something is unequal, and it's, and this is something we're going to mention, is that a lot of the misunderstanding in how to address this comes from the confusion of, in terms of understanding social justice and distributive justice. And so we would say you can't deal with distributive justice until you deal with participative justice. And in the economy, that means how do you get to contribute to the production of goods and services so that you earn that income so you can buy what you need from others and it's in the notion of participation as an owner as well as a, a worker of someone who uses their labor that we start to see this was an insight of lewis kelso's was that in, it, this idea later became he called binary economics and that just meant we need to realize a couple of binary relationships um, one is that there are not just one way for most people to earn a living you know through wages and um, salaries but you can also earn an income by contributing your capital so you can contribute as an owner of labor and as an owner of capital now the problem is the way that most people become owners of capital it either required that they really, over maybe a couple generations, had been working hard, saving and investing in capital instruments, or through shenanigans, managed to get a special favor in order in, in terms of getting loans um, where they could be the, the only ones who are purchasing most of the productive instruments. Now, this was probably not too important until um, you went through. You know very early on, it was human labor. Then you bring in animals who can help uh, produce more when people use them in tools, and then you get to um advanced tools and now you have artificial intelligence and robotics, and we can see that human labor is becoming replaced faster and faster. and who is it who's making the billions of dollars? It's not the wage earners. I mean they can keep raising the minimum wage you know forever. But you're never going to, if you focus on that, you don't address the problem. How can each of us participate through ownership of our own capital? So the practical, that, that's a practical problem. And I think that's, as Mike, who's our historian, would say, uh, Pope Leo Thirteenth, for example, he was a proponent, a strong proponent of private property. And he wanted to make sure that the mass of people, meaning most people in society at least, um, became owners, cap, owners of the means of production. However, he and Pius XI, who also was a proponent of private property, couldn't think of a better way for the ordinary person to be able to do this than the employer maybe paying enough extra so that the worker could save and then later invest in capital. Well, that's a very inefficient way for most people. And you know most people today, if they can save enough, they would go, Oh, I'll buy some shares on Wall Street stock market, and I'll hold on to those shares and sell them later for a higher price. So that's the way most people think of stock ownership. But Kelso was saying, No, each of us needs to be an owner of shares in corporations that use these advanced tools and create more and more goods and services. And that is kind of also the notion of social justice in how human beings interact socially, that you don't have to be a genius marketer and a genius engineer and a genius, you know, senior manager, whatever, or or a really good janitor. Um, It's people fulfilling various roles coming together. And then also through this thing called the corporation, which is another social tool, you can start to acquire assets. And you have then how do the tools work with the people to produce more and more goods and services, hopefully at a lower and lower price to the the consumer. So it then became a question of finance. And so this idea of money and credit that Mike was saying, once we understand it, not as just something that is, you know, the valuable thing in and of itself, it's a symbol it's a measurement once we see it as a tool for enabling each person to be able to acquire capital and repay it with the future profits of the corporations that use it you now have a very efficient system i mean now it's it becomes practical to say there doesn't you know you could you know potentially eliminate all poverty if you can figure out a way that every person on this planet could have access to sufficient, and this is not past savings space, Mike will talk about this, new money and credit in order to purchase capital assets that will pay for themselves. So that suddenly becomes a new paradigm uh, by which the more important aspects of human beings, the developing of virtue, for example, um, the contribution to society and civilization then you get to, you can shift away from making people do work that's toil, that just grinds them down to nothing and they're exhausted, to doing the work that they would love to do. So that's you know, <laughs> in more of a nutshell, but that, that's why we think in terms of what is what was missing, the money and credit aspect was very essential. And the notion of now looking at participation, we need that work look through the encyclicals, look just about everywhere and you won't find the use of the word or there may be in some very isolated cases, we haven't found it, the use of the term participative justice. Okay, so that is one of the things that was missing and then we can understand social justice and how the human person carries that out.
0: Yeah, I I would only add that, from a mechanical point of view, everyone in the system, you know, to, to have a fully participative system must be both a producer and a consumer. Yes. Now, what happens when you have some people who are only consumers mm-hmm. and some people who are, to all intents and purposes, only producers? See, when you have somebody who is an ultra-trillionaire, the amount they spend on consumption is statistically zero. Yeah. Everything else is just put into more investments so in effect what you have when you have extremely rich people is you have people who are only producers and those who are only consumers well in order to get the the money to to be able to consume the government either prints it up and gives it to the people who are only consumers or takes money from the producers and gives it to the people who are only consumers which they of course use to consume, which means that basically they're only a conduit for funneling money to the people who are already rich. They end up with nothing because they've consumed what they purchased. Whereas the producers don't really consume much of anything. They just produce more and more and more ending up with all the money. Mm -hmm. So if you have people, however, who are both producers and consumers what you do is that in order to be able to consume what somebody else produces, you must produce something to trade to that other person to get what that person produced. And that medium of exchange is what we call money.
2: So I think what Mike is pointing out here is also another aspect of binary economics, which is um, expressed within what was called Say's Law of Markets. And it's looking at balance in the economy between production and consumption. And if you don't have balance, it's either because, well, say what I I guess he would explain it, that some people are not able to participate or contribute to the production. So they're not generating their own income in order to be able to purchase the goods that other people have produced. In other words, consumption and production must be in balance. And what we have is a system where the hyper producers, that's the super rich, who are now using capital instruments to, that's their contribution. They can't buy more than a certain number of yachts and mansions and eggs and whatever. And so you're gonna have a, a, a uh, uh, a lack of balance. And so that in itself is gonna cause further problems in the economy and at a certain point the super rich you know in order to even survive they need the rest of us they need they need people to purchase the goods they're producing and if what happens is if that is unable to take place then they're even willing to start having governments start redistributing but the the funny thing is that when you have power you you will tend to try and keep power and so what happens is even if some through the taxation system there is the necessary amount of income being redistributed it's still the same small number of people who are determining what's happening in the economy and what's happening in politics and what's happening in terms of policies in general so we have to look at avoiding concentrations of power which we know will corrupt but we have to make sure that every human being has their own basis of power so that they can fully participate in whatever the social realm whether it's the economy or another area politics for example um, and make sure the system keeps power decentralized and spread out not only for example you talk about states rights well you know really where the rights have to be recognized is with each of the citizens. And so we have to look at how our system now blocks participation. And just mainly it's to lift barriers to everyone being able to participate as both not only a consumer, but as a producer.
0: Yeah, basically just to summarize, and the best way of putting it is the way Jean-Baptiste say rather in early 19th century sarcasm, explained it to Thomas Malthus, you know, the fellow who wrote the essay on population. We can only purchase what others produce with what we produce. He says, ultimately, we can only purchase production with production. So if there are goods that remain unsold, it's because other goods are not produced. And the one thing you want to do is avoid what say called barren consumptions in other words printing up money just so that people can consume hand out a universal basic income and provide it to everybody whether or not they produce so say called that barren consumption because it was not backed up by what someone produced of course extreme cases somebody who is you know uh, not able to produce or is too old or too young or as a charity case or something That's an exception. As a general rule, in order to consume, you must produce. And if you produce, you must consume what you produce for the system to stay in balance.
1: It looks like everything going on right now is like as Don brought up about the robots taking over jobs. It seems like it's a combination of people, mostly young, being completely lazy. And they just they like the handouts from government handouts that we've been accustomed for for Decades and decades. Now you throw in this UBI promise. So don't work. We'll let a robot take your job, and we'll give you the money. Uh, how how do you see this coming out? Because it looks like I mean, there was a the, there was a talk about the I brought it up before about the getting rid of trucking the truckers and teaching them how to do yoga, you know, teach yeah. yoga instructors and things like that. Going, can you see uh, Bubba being a yoga instructor? You know, th- you well, know stuff like uh, that. Let's go
0: if I could see it except in my nightmares. But the fact is there's nothing wrong with a robot doing the work and you taking the money if you own the robot. I mean, Louis Kelso pointed this out in an interview in Life Magazine back in 1964. If the machine wants our job, let's buy the machine. Mm -hmm. Nothing wrong with that. The problem comes in is where somebody else owns the machine and you get the income. That That's the problem.
2: Right. And I think also, Steve, you raise a good question, and that has to do with if we had our income supplied to us through our ownership of assets, our owning the robots, what would we do then with our time? You know, would we just sit in front of the television set eating, you know, nachos or whatever? Well, part of the problem is our educational system and what we are educated to be in the future. We are educated to be wage workers. I mean, if you ask most college students, why are you going to college? It's so I can get a good job and have more money. Well, okay, so you have the money, let's say you're, you you you're, labor is no longer needed, but you're able to get a regular income through your ownership. What are you gonna do with, you know, now that you have the income, what are you gonna do with your time? And I think most people need some form of work. Now, you know, there's always exceptions, but most people wanna feel useful. They wanna feel like they're contributing. They wanna feel like they're growing. And if we don't educate people on how to use what we would call what Aristotle called their leisure time, then yes, you're gonna have a society of very confused people just smoking weed all the time, and you know, <laughs> and pretty much society will start to just fall apart. So we and, and I'd say this was another point I want to make, is this is where Father Free's ideas of social justice are really important, and, and that is each of us have to always be looking towards every level of the common good and making sure that every person can participate and get their fair rewards from their contributions. And where you don't have that accessible, that human beings don't have the ability to correct or they, they, they're being harmed in some way by the bad structuring of systems, that can be an educational system too, then how do you change it? And so this was really important this notion of the act of social justice is when there's a problem and you you identify it but in the system is wrong you have to bring other people together who recognize that understand what the problem is understand that it's generally going to be a barrier to participation and if you know what it is in that institution that is a barrier and the barrier can be lifted that's when you start organizing large numbers of people to demand just change. And so to go back to the original story we talked about, um, the, the fact that we had members of Polish solidarity involved with this, we would say that was an example of the act of social justice is how the Soviet system, you know, no one expected it to collapse that quickly. You know and the problem was there really wasn't a just system to take its place. It was pretty much a capitalist system which did what we anticipated would happen. A few rich people or you know the people who are in power or the criminals, they uh, buy up these new the, the, this uh, shares that were distributed to every citizen for you know $50 they when they privatized the state-owned enterprises and we're, you had vouchers for shares the vouchers right and, and they just got purchased up and so you know people bought their extra bottle of vodka but now they had no ownership and so it was a, a, a very inadequate solution that was um, being proposed and carried out but it's in for example the civil rights movement in enabling every person to have a vote because you know for um, after I guess it was reconstruction you start to see that basically even if it was sa- stayed a little differently in the law the reality was a good portion of the um, of people could not vote in fact they get thrown in jail if they tried to vote so I mean and, and everything was put into a system to block their participation in the vote so there was saying? government did that well yes uh, she did (laughs) well government actually is a tool of people and depending on who controls it you know you may you don't even have to be a government official or an elected official to be controlling what government does Mm -hmm. and so this is also why it was really important for every person to have their share of economic power so that they would have a commensurate share that they would have the ability to participate in, po- in the political system, you know, on a, a level playing field. So that was one example of social justice, the coming together on a very specific moral target. One person, one vote. Okay. And it was a very...
1: Living it, or dead. It,
2: it, yeah. <laughs> yeah it, but the interesting thing was it, it happened pretty quickly. I think because it happened in a system, the American system still had the capacity to legislate, to change um, the system through legislation. But then you found that the same thing in terms of economics was not put into place. So then you start having, well, okay, one person, one vote. Well, the problem is when you're a voter, but you don't have property, then property becomes very vulnerable to redistribution so that people can earn a living. So you had really a movement towards more welfare state uh, solutions to deal with the economic inequality. So that's where the ideas of social justice, it's never ending. There's always gonna be something not completely perfect about our institutions, or there may be in some cases just really badly or um ordered institutions and what do you do when you have this powerful system like the Soviet Union you know no one thought that that would collapse so quickly but it was a number of factors Mm. but it was also I would say the Polish solidarity was a very important part of that I think um, what Ronald Reagan his um his focus on communism just trying to end that as a system I think there there was a moral reason for that. But this kind of Russia, how come
1: we're pushing, especially on my end. Uh, you add a scale too big. Uh, yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. If yes. you look at you, you brought up Russia as the uh, USSR, that thing is gigantic.
2: Yes.
1: And a lot of people look at the USA as one gigantic landmass controlled by a ten-mile square known as DC instead of fifty separate entities united and the one blanket thing, 320 million people ruled by 500 some odd people,
2: kind of at a scale, right? Yeah, you, you're absolutely right. And I think a lot of that, there's a number of things, is the intersection between economics and the rest of politics in that there's been a movement. I'd say it was certainly uh, Ronald Reagan's administration was as much involved in this as any following one And that was to allow government actually to grow larger, but also to allow these monopolies or they're not quite monopolies, but they're certainly in terms of, for example, Google, um, its position in the economy, it pretty much doesn't have any rivals now. And that's one thing you would look at is is there competition is there fair competition do we have a free mark really a free market system well if you put up a barrier to new companies entering the marketplace with new ideas then you're going to have that kind of concentration of economic power and thereby you know the danger of the ma- manipulation you know you don't have checks on that huge concentration of power so Yes, I think that's you, you put your your finger on it. Is it's out of scale right you now? You saw
1: that this past year, as Don said about that, but Walmart being open, but mom and pop store closed. Yeah,
2: and then you know th- what really gets me is that Walmart, as part of its regular policy, has its employees apply for food stamps. And on, and my husband's pointing out now that's getting the taxpayer to subsidize Walmart. You know they're not paying enough to their employees so they're expecting the taxpayers to to pick up the bill so that their employees can work for them at such low you know wages that it's to the benefit of the owners of walmart but not certainly not to the benefits of the uh, employees and then the question is what do you do about that do you keep forcing higher and higher minimum wage requirements well walter ruther who was the president of the uaw back in this was in the 60s, he found out about Louis Calso's ideas. And he said that really, the solution is not to keep raising fixed uh, labor prices, wages and salaries, you got to cut people in on the future ownership opportunities. So people gain their incomes from profits. And that way you won't be Continually ratcheting up the price of
1: things. I'll get a little controversial for a second. Not that I'd never shy away from that.
2: Yeah, right,
1: right. we brought up the minimum wage a few times. I've read that that was a basically a racial institution to keep people out of the work,
2: out of jobs. Have you guys um, heard of that? Yeah, maybe. What explain where? But. Is behind, you know, what a little bit more detail. I'll bring that up and, next time. I'll get okay. the link. <laughs> well, I, you know, I, I do think that there is definitely, you know, in terms of shutting off opportunities for certain people to get credit to start up businesses. Um, you know, we have a friend who's a a lawyer, a, a professor of graduate and doctoral students. You know, excellent credit rating. And now this was just for a mortgage. I mean, I think their rate, their credit rating was 830, you know, 850 is the highest credit rating you can have. And she and her husband go to get a a mortgage for a house. And you know, she's fully, they're both employed, making good money. And this is just recently, I mean, it was maybe a, a year ago, year or two ago, And they were quoted an interest rate of 10%. You know, this wasn't during the Carter administration. This was when interest rates for home mortgages was, you know, maybe around 4%. And, you know, she's not an idiot. And she mentions, well, look at our, check out our credit rating. You know, you can find that online. And, oh, okay. So at that point, this guy was trying to, put an interest rate of 10%. Now, the thing is, many people, she happens to be um, African-American, and she and her husband, that this was not just her experiencing this. We've had other people, sorry, just a second, um, who've been in similar positions, and that's just for mortgage loans. Now, when you look at, are there barriers to African-Americans to get business loans, you know that's what you want to start looking into. And a lot of times, things will be, you know, that notion of redlining is that just by zip code, um, lenders are look at these areas as okay, you're going to charge a higher interest because they're going to be higher risk. And a lot of times, it could be people who are, you know, basically middle class, upper middle class. They just happen to be African American. So I think. We should look more. We should look carefully at what's called. I know it's a term that drives people crazy. You know this systemic racism. Okay, what does that mean? And I think it's you know it's it's worth looking into that question and hearing what is how's that translate into real life for real people. And it, basically, it would be that you know you look at things like health delivery systems and even food distribution. The notion of food de- districts, um, or f- food deserts, excuse me, that there there is a connection to you know what your your background happens to be. So and you know and you could say well sometimes it's people just you know being lazy or they're not taking advantage of opportunities. Well, yes, that that can definitely be, but I think most people want to be productive and they want to be able to better their lives. So. That's just an example of how have nots can be blocked from becoming haves. And that's what we're looking at each human person. We're saying equality of ownership opportunity. And that can only come about if you move away from this idea in finance that you have to already have savings built up in order to buy capital. So that is a a way that we can escape that trap is to realize by the correct use of money and credit. You can have a sound growing economy and create new owners of capital, and this should be just available no matter what you look like, what your background is.
1: Yeah,
0: and in reference to the uh, the question that you had asked about, well, what are people supposed to do if the machines are doing the work for them, whether it's they're getting their income from redistribution or because they own the machines? And the answer is, you know, in one word, education. Unfortunately, our education system is not exactly what it should be. And this is the the great contradiction I found looking over the Great Reset. If there's one thing that Klaus Schwab likes to talk about, it's the importance of education. Page after page, chapter after chapter on the importance of education. Why? To make people productive. They'll be able to get better jobs. They'll be able to produce more. Economic growth will go up if you have a well-educated workforce. And then on the next page, he talks about people not having to work because the machines are doing the work. I could not resolve the contradiction
1: there. (laughs) I'm glad I'm not the only one who saw this. (laughs) So that kind of ties into uh, next week. What is, what is the topic you guys want to go with for next week?
0: Well, you know, since we're following more or less the, the plan of the book, uh, we we're going to address more fully, we, we didn't talk about today, but more fully a theory of human dignity, what it means to focus on the person, what personalism really means when you're talking about actual people, rather than some abstraction like the collective or humanity or the capitalists or the socialists or something. We need to get specific. What do we mean by human dignity?
1: We are the Borg.
2: Yeah. <laughs> that's not human dignity.
1: <laughs> but we meant the collective. Every time it says collective, collective. I think of yeah, we are the Borg. Cool. Resistance is futile.
2: Yeah, that's exactly right.
1: Michael, Dom, appreciate it as always. and Go check out the Get the Book. The link is under note, underneath in the show notes. Go grab it. It will take you right to it, uh, to the Amazon chapter where you can find it. It will be shipped right to you in a couple days. Uh, live it, learn it, love it is the phrase in that one movie. I can't remember the name of the movie. said. Anyways, uh, thank you, guys, and uh, we'll talk to you next time. Okay. Thank you, Steve.